If you, if you grew up in a, a big city, you know how difficult it is to look up at the, the sky at night and see stars. How many of you, raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. If you look up at night and you just see black sky, right? That was certainly uh, my experience. I, I'm from Long Beach, California, Los Angeles County. I spent the first chunk of my life there, a city full of lights that never go out. And here's the unique thing about Los Angeles. In addition to competing lights, you also have the smog, right? It's why my asthma immediately stopped when I moved to Georgia, <laughs> right? So not only do you have these bright lights, but if I were to walk out of my, uh, my home on Bellflower Boulevard as a kid at night and look up into the sky, I would see only darkness. Because of these competing lights and because of the smog, right? Now the stars were there, but I just couldn't see them. So as you can imagine, I remember very vividly the first time I got outside of the city and looked up at the sky at night. Uh, we were camping in Death Valley National Park near Nevada. We were there on a, a dirt bike riding trip, and we were camping out on the, the dry lake bed. And that's as fun as it sounds, which is not at all. Um, and the first night of that trip, I, re I remember vividly looking up at the sky when the sun went down and it, it was dark and seeing for the very first time a sky full of stars. Not just a few dots here and there, but an endless ocean of bright stars against this backdrop of the night sky. Now, now what, what changed in my vision from Los Angeles to, to Death Valley? It's very simple. I had a different point of view. The, the sky didn't change. It's only four hours from where I live, looking up at the same sky, that the stars were always there, but at first, my point of view was hindered by competing lights and, and pollution. Only when I was removed from that scenario, got a different point of view, and those hindrances were pushed away, could I see the brightness and beauty of the night sky. Genesis 38 looks like that dark, empty, starless sky. This is a, a brutal chapter, one of the most sordid chapters in, in all of the Bible. It's full of self-exaltation, sexual immorality, incest, neglect, abuse. And just so you know, we are going to be tasteful as we cover these things this morning, but we're also going to be honest about them. It is a brutal chapter. In fact, one Genesis commentator got to this chapter, and he said, quote, it is entirely unsuitable for homiletical use. Meaning, hey, you can't preach anything meaningful or helpful here, so just move on to Genesis 39 and get back to the story of Joseph. Now, sometimes when you're reading these books, you want to throw them against the wall. That's one of those moments, but we rent an office, so I didn't do that. And that person is dead wrong about this chapter. There is so much for us here. We just need the right point of view. There are stars here. There are gospel treasures here. The reality of God's grace, not only in the story of, of Judah and Tamar, but also in our story as well. So that's what we're doing this morning. We're getting out into the desert, if you will, and we're looking up at this passage. And, and here's the prayer as we come to Genesis 38. 
that we would see it properly. And when we do, when we see what's going on here in all of its dark and polluted backdrop, we'll see the grace of Jesus shine all the more brightly for these people and for you and I. You know, if you think about it, that's actually the point of of the entire Bible. That's the point of the entire Christian message. Only against the backdrop of great failure can we properly understand and comprehend the reality of God's greater grace for us. That's what's happening in Genesis 38 here. And we need that perspective, not just to help us read the Bible, not so we just throw away passages that are hard, but we also need that perspective as we read our own lives, right? How often do we look at the night sky of our own lives, our own situations, our own sufferings and struggles and and sins, and say there is nothing meaningful here. There's only darkness. We need the right perspective, the gospel perspective, to see that in the midst of such darkness, God's grace shines brightly for us. So that's where we're headed this morning in Genesis 38. And we're going to do this in in two parts. Okay, Big chapter, a lot of verses. We didn't even read all of them. But first, we're going to see great failure. And then second, we're going to see greater grace. First, great failure and greater grace. We'll see Judah's failure to keep God's word. We'll also see his failure as a father and a father-in-law. Then we'll see greater grace hidden in this story. In Tamar's commitment, we'll see grace in Judah's repentance. And then lastly, we'll see greater grace in the birth of Perez. So let's jump in here after I take a sip of my water. It's cold and dry, folks. All right, first, great failure. As we jump in here to verse 1, the first thing we see is Judah's failure to keep God's word. Now, a little backstory on Judah, because it's important. This guy had so much potential. Let's remember who he is. He's the fourth son of Jacob. He's a part of the family of promise. He had three brothers before him, but they blew their chance at being uh, at receiving the inheritance, at continuing on the promise. Here's why. Reuben, the oldest, lost any chance of this because of his sexual immorality. Then Simeon and Levi, they lost their opportunity because extreme violence. They took vengeance on a group of people who violated their sister in a very extreme and violent way. We can read about this in Genesis 34 and 35. So so they, they blew it. Next in line, we have Judah, the fourth son. And there's this anticipation we see all throughout Genesis from Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve start having children, maybe this next son will be the one. Maybe he's going to be the one to fulfill the promise and reverse the curse. And we keep getting the same answer. No, it's not him. No, it's not him. No, it's not him. Failure, failure, failure. The same is true with Reuben. The same is true with Simeon and Levi. Now, what about Judah? Well, we come to Judah and we see that he is no different. He too fails to keep the terms of God's covenant. Now we got a glimpse of this last week as, we, as Pastor Clint started the story of Joseph. Do you remember whose idea it was to sell Joseph into slavery? It was Judah's idea. Not only, he's, he's saying, listen, not only should we you know, deceive our father and, and, and get rid of this guy, but hey, while we're at it, what if we made some financial profit 
off of selling our own brother into slavery. That gives you a glimpse into the heart of Judah here. And so we come to chapter 38 that takes this detour to focus on Judah. We'll see why later. But it begins by telling us that Judah leaves his family to live among the Canaanites. Look at verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. Now you might say, well, that just sounds like it's explaining something that happened here. What's what's the big deal about leaving his family and going to live among these other people? Well, we've known since Genesis 9 that these other nations, specifically the Canaanites, were God's enemies. And so we've, we've heard this command that God has given through the family consistently. Genesis 24, Genesis 26, Genesis 28. Do not intermingle with the Canaanites. Don't intermarry, don't befriend them. Because to do so is essentially to say, I'm going to mix my, my relationship to Yahweh, following God, the one true God. I'm going to mix it with the pagan religions of those around me. It always led to idolatry. So there were strong commands against this. To bring that principle into to our lives today, the Apostle Paul applies it this way in 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? See, the yoke was that crossbar that would, would align two oxen together as they pulled a plow. And what Paul is saying here, he's saying, don't align yourselves with godlessness. Don't join yourselves to those who are opposed to me. And that's exactly what Judah's doing here. He shows he has no concern for the promise, no concern for the word of God, no concern for the warning and the command not to do this. He's going down, Moses tells us, and he is turning aside. Those geographical descriptions have a spiritual symbolism. He's rejecting his God and he is descending downward and turning away from the Lord as he befriends Hira and as he marries this unnamed Canaanite woman. We'll see this play out later. But that's his first failure. He has disregarded the word of God. But we also see a glimpse of his wickedness even more here. Not just that he married this Canaanite woman, but how he married her. Do you see that? Verse 2 says he saw... And he took. Does that sound familiar if you've been with us through Genesis? Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. This isn't isn't love language for, for Judah. This is lust language. This isn't your favorite romantic comedy, you know, where Tom Hanks just lovingly, patiently pursues Meg Ryan because he feels bad about shutting down her bookstore. And then in the end, it all works out, right? You've got mail. This is, this is a man who is driven by his lust of the flesh. He saw and took. That's always the motive of, of sin. I'm going to prioritize my desires over and above obedience to God's command and the good of others. If I want it, I'm going to take it. And so this 
this pattern continues, not just in Judah, but also in Judah's sons. As we read on, we see Judah's failure as a father. Now, before we get into this, I think it's really important for us to know, not to excuse Judah's sin, but to remember that Judah's father, Jacob, was not a role model. Judah's not the first one to mess up in this family. Right? Jacob treated Judah's mother, Leah, with disdain. He, too, prioritized himself and his own wants and desires over God's word and the good of others. So it's no surprise to us when we see this continue in Judah's life. It's like the idiom says, like father, like son. And he continues it on, and then he passes it on to his sons as well. They're just as wicked. Look at verse 3. And she, this is his wife, the unnamed Canaanite woman, conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. So we're introduced to the three sons of Judah, and then the second main character of the story, which is Tamar, Ur's wife. Now, last week, Pastor Clint pointed out that in Genesis 37, there's no direct mention of God in the passage, but we see clear evidence of his working behind the scenes. You remember that? A really important point for this story. Here, it's a little more intense. The only mention of God, the only direct mention of God that we see in Genesis 38 is when he shows up to directly execute wicked people. You see that here? We know very little about Ur. We don't know the nature of his sin. We're not told what he, he did, but we see the seriousness of it, right? There's no discipline. There's no warning there's no trial or imprisonment or, or season of, of suffering to sort of shape Ur and, and, and see him grow in godliness and repentance. Whatever he did, the only response from God is immediate righteous judgment. God was wicked, so he killed him. Now here's why this is so important for us. Because we can infer here that this was no happy marriage for Tamar, was it? We don't know what he did, but we can, we can just say, when your husband is so wicked that God kills him in an instant for it, and this is the first time this happens in Scripture, we can assume that the home life wasn't enjoyable. So as we're introduced to Tamar, we're also introduced to a woman who is oppressed from the start. So now she's without a husband and without a child. And in this, this culture, what did this mean? This was... This was a woman's well-being as well as uh, her significance was caught up in these things. She has no husband and no child, which would have meant financially she would have been destitute as a widow. Now, there was a, a custom for these situations called leveret marriage. It's from a, a Latin word for brother-in-law, and it's later uh, codified in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And here's, here's what the custom of leveret marriage says. Now just as a side note, if you've ever read the book of Ruth, the story of Ruth and Boaz, you see leveret marriage going well. In Genesis 38, it, it doesn't go so well. But here's the custom of this. If a man dies, 
without having a son for an heir, his younger brother would be responsible for trying to provide a male heir for the brother's widow so that the child would be able to inherit his land, the property, the riches, the wealth from his dead father. And the widow would be provided for as well. Now let's just admit, that is very strange for our culture. right? Nobody's like advocating leveret marriage today. That would be weird. But remember, if a woman was widowed in this culture and time, she would have had no provision. She would have been destitute. So, because there was no pension, there was no social security, no life insurance... If she had no son, she had no land. If she had no land, she had no provision. And if that happened, she'd be vulnerable to those in authority who would come and buy up the land, sell it off, and she would be vulnerable to things like slavery and prostitution. So this concept of leveret marriage, later codified in Numbers 25, though foreign and strange to us today, the heart of it is a way to protect the vulnerable. You see that? reflects the character of God's heart. So Judah, it looks like Judah's going to do something good here. right? He, he then starts to put this leveret marriage into practice, and he tells his next son, Onan, to fulfill his leveret responsibility. Verse 8, Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan refuses to fulfill this responsibility. Now, I am not going to read verse 9. I'm just not going to do it. You can read it on your own. But I think it's important to understand what's happening here. Because I think Moses is doing something that we can miss in our English translations in verse 9. Essentially what Onan does is he does the act without providing what would be necessary for her to conceive and bury a child. But what Moses describes here is what Onan does to the ground. It's the same language. What Onan does to the ground is the same language he uses to describe the flood account in Genesis 6 and the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. Essentially, what Moses is saying is that Onan is ruining the earth. He is destroying the earth. It's an attempt, I think what Moses is trying to show us here with that connection, which he does often in Genesis, is that this is an attempt to destroy and ruin a God-given responsibility. A total disregard for God's commands. Like father, like son. And the focus here is on why Onan did this. Why did he do it? He didn't want Tamar to have a child. He was concerned with his own line. He's only thinking about himself. He didn't want a divided inheritance. But he is willing to selfishly use and abuse Tamar for his wicked pleasures. Verse 9 says, whenever he did this, which means it was a continual act. And for this, how does God respond? Verse 10, what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord and he put him to death also. For this wicked act, God kills Onan, judges him immediately. I think it's important to note here that nothing speaks louder and clearer than God's word against sexual abuse or any kind of abuse. 
nothing. God doesn't speak here, but his action speaks very loudly. Immediate judgment. Therefore, we can infer us as God's people, the church, should speak the loudest and the clearest in our world against these things. Authority is meant to be used for the good of others, not for sinful, selfish gain. It's meant to model the merciful and just authority of God. This leveret responsibility was meant to show care and concern for Tamar. But Onan twists this authority and uses it for his own selfish gain and victimizes her. And for that, God burns with righteous anger. And this is not a temper tantrum. This is clear and calculated. Not a fit of rage, but righteous and just judgment. God kills him for it. So now, we have two sons who are dead. Two wicked husbands who are dead. Tamar is twice widowed. She is at risk of being destitute. She's been abused, victimized. How does Judah respond? Verse 11. Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. What does he do? He sends her back to her father, and he says, he acts like, hey, Tamar, when Shayla is, is grown up, he is the next in line to fulfill this leveret responsibility, so you guys will get married. But then we read that he has no intention of doing this because he thinks she's cursed, and he wants to protect his son. So he lies to her, deceives her, sends her off. Now then we go on and we read. He just moves on as if nothing's, nothing's wrong. But we see an even clearer example of Judah's wickedness. Look at verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears. He and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself, and sat at the entrance of Enaim which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. She realized he was lying. Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come in to you. Notice how quickly Judah moves on. He never once rebuked his sons for their wickedness. He never once did an about face and say, why do these guys keep dying? He never once thought, maybe I should take care of Tamar. He was blinded to their sin because he was blinded to his own sin. So blind that when they die, even though they're clearly wicked, his first thought is, this must be Tamar's fault. She must be cursed. I'm going to keep my family far away from her and put her off. Now we'll get to Tamar's plan in a moment, but notice this. Notice that Tamar knew Judah's reputation for visiting prostitutes, right? It's part of her plan, which is not only sexually immoral in this culture, but it was always connected to pagan worship. 
It's not just immorality, it's also idolatry. Now when you put all this together, Judah, the guy you probably learned about if you went to Sunday school, there was maybe a flannel graph about the great sons of Jacob. In Judah we see a great failure. Failure to keep God's word. Failure as a father and as a father-in-law. Disobedience, lust, a refusal to confront sin and neglect of the vulnerable. Now this is where we we have to be careful here because the temptation is to say, man, that guy is really messed up. But what God wants us to do is hold up the mirror of his word to our own hearts here. See, Judas so neglected God's word that he is blinded to the sin in his own life, even in his own family. For every result of sin, he shifts blame instead of taking responsibility. And we may not have committed these same things. It may seem strange to us. But, friends, each and every one of us is tempted to neglect God's word, his clear commands in our lives. Ask yourself, in what ways do I neglect to obey God's word in my own life? Judah was certainly would have called himself a follower of Yahweh. He certainly would have had decent church attendance, probably prayed to God. After all, he's a part of Jacob's family. But he ignored God's word. And it set him on a path of rejection and blindness. What he failed to do was bring all of his life into submission to the word of God. I think it's a clear application for us here. Are we bringing not just this part, not just the spiritual part, not just the church attendance part, but every area of our lives, our thoughts, our deeds, our family, our work, our relationships, our dreams, are we bringing all of it into submission and conformity to God's word? Now second, we have to ask ourselves, in what ways do we blame others for our sin or the consequences of our sin? Judah was guilty of sexual immorality, idolatry, neglect, and as we'll see in a moment, violent self-righteousness. Then when judgment comes for sin, his first response is, it must be her fault. Does that that sound familiar? Back to Genesis 3. Adam, have you eaten of the fruit of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? What does Adam say? The woman whom you gave me, God, she made me do it. Blame shifting. Eve, did did you eat of the fruit of the tree? What does Eve say? The serpent made me do it. A failure to take responsibility for sin. The right response for Judah, the right response for Adam, and even the right response for us when we're confronted with these things is, God, I've sinned. Forgive me. I have no one to blame but myself. If we're not constantly cultivating hearts and being honest about our failures before a holy God, then we're not going to be willing to receive the remedy of God's grace for those failures. We'll just keep shifting blame. Now Judah is not there yet. Right? He's, he's not ready to be honest about his failures, but the story's not over. And that leads us to number two. So number one, great sin. Number two, greater grace. First, we see God's grace here in a very strange place, in Tamar's commitment. 
So as we, as we go on, Shelah, this third son, is grown. And Tamar sees that Judah has no intention of having Shelah fulfill this leveret duty. So she disguises herself as a prostitute where she knows Judah will stop on this journey to Timnah. In verse 16, as we read on, it says, He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff. That's in your hand. So he gave them to her. And went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she rose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. So Judah attempts to pay for this interaction with a goat, but Tamar, who's thinking ahead, says, I need a pledge. I need, I need something to hold on to uh, between now and when you pay me. And she asks for the signet, a cord, and a staff. It's a way of saying, I'll hold on to these until you pay me. And she's saying, I need something to identify you by. This signet was likely a, a, a ring that was worn a, a, on a cord around the neck that would be a stamp. It would identify Judah. This staff uh, wasn't just a stick. It would have had a carving at the top, uh, a metal carving at the top that would have identified Judah. If you've been watching Book of Boba Fett, Right, The sand people create one of these for Boba Fett. If you're not watching that, forgive me for nerding out for a second. Right, The point is, she's asking for his wallet, his keys, and his social security number. That's essentially what she's asking for. Something to identify him by. Now, this is tough because we have to be both honest and understanding about what Tamar's doing here. We, we can be honest about what she's doing while still commending her commitment. The reality is she is deceiving. She is lying. And she is using prostitution to get something that she wants. So don't mishear this passage. This is not condoning those things. The message is not, you know what? The ends justify the means. So whatever you can do, as long as the end result is good, it's fine. That's not what God's word is saying here. Yet, if we've been paying attention... We understand Tamar's dire situation, don't we? we? We have sympathy for her. We see how she's been mistreated and victimized. And the narrative is clear. God's word is clear that Judah's wickedness and the wickedness of his sons is far greater than Tamar's wickedness here. In fact, it's Judah's action and inaction and Ur and Onan's actions and inaction that create this dire situation for Tamar. Okay? So that helps us understand her without saying it's okay to do these things to get what you want. But I think there's more here. I was wrestling with this prayerfully over the last couple of weeks. Asking myself, why in the world would Tamar keep coming back to this family? Right? Yes, she was destitute. And that was a big deal in the culture. I, I certainly understand that. But she did have her father's house. What, what, what would make her keep coming back to this abusive family? At what point does she say, you know what, forget this. I'm fine with no money. I'll just live in my father's house as a widow till the day I die. I believe the underlying reason why Tamar is committed 
is because she knew the promises of God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That the promised one who would bring salvation would come through this family. And this is why she ends up, as we'll see in a moment, in Matthew's genealogy. She's commended. This is why David names his daughter after her. And if this is true, she's essentially by faith, against all odds, pledging herself, not primarily to this family, but to the Lord. She is in a strange way seeking first the kingdom of God. And what does God do? God provides what she desires. She conceives and God works through her actions to bring about his grace and continue the line of promise through which the Savior Jesus Christ comes, the rescuer. And so we see God's grace in Tamar's commitment. But we also see God's grace, and this is where it's most clear in this passage, I think, in Judah's repentance. Read on in verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where's the cult prostitute who was at Enam at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of her place said, no cult prostitute had been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. So Judah tries to make this payment, and he realizes something's not right because there was never a prostitute there. So he wants to save face. And move on. He doesn't repent. Not yet. Doesn't recognize wrongdoing. But he just moves on. A few months later, he hears that Tamar's pregnant. And what's his response? The language here is two words. Take, burn. That's Judah's response. She's been sexually immoral. Take and burn. And this reveals his hypocritical double standard, doesn't it? Isn't it interesting that the sins we tend to rage most against in others, it seems like we often struggle with the most ourselves. I think that's what's happening here for Judah. By the way, burning was not a common way of execution. This was a very gruesome thing that he was planning to do. He's quick to call out the sin of others while neglecting the sin that's consumed his own Life. It's like Jesus' imagery, right? Judah is saying Tamar has a speck in her eye. Judah is sitting there with a huge plank in his eye. He is committed to a life of sexual immorality, but he sees it in her and he says, take her out and burn her. Friends, the opposite should be true of us. We should not be quick to judge the sins of others without looking at our own hearts. Instead, we should be quick to identify our own sinfulness so that we can repent, cast ourselves at the feet of Jesus, and then we'd be equipped to lovingly minister to those who are in need. That's the kind of loving, supernatural work that the gospel brings, but Judah's not there yet. But here, 
in the big reveal, we see a change in Judah. Look at verse 25. As she was being brought out, the image here is as she's literally being carried to be burned alive. It's the last minutes of her life. She sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I'm pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. I believe this is the moment of repentance for Judah. This is where God in his grace flips the switch on in his heart. And we see two things here that show us that this is genuine. First, he immediately vindicates Tamar. She is more righteous than I. He's been blaming her for years. But now he realizes, I didn't do what I was supposed to do as a father-in-law. I didn't care for her like I should have. She is more righteous than I. He doesn't try to cover it up anymore. He doesn't try to make excuses. And in doing so, he's essentially saying, I have realized my unrighteousness. Friends, that is the first mark of true repentance. No more excuses. No more blame shifting. But taking responsibility for how you and I have wronged God and wronged others. But second, we also see, if we were to look ahead, zoom ahead, we see Judah's life change from this point forward. He's a changed man. True repentance always is put on display by a changed life. We know this isn't just lip service for for Judah. Let me give you an example. As we continue on in the story of, of Joseph, we'll see in chapter 44, in a few weeks... That when Judah and his brothers are in Egypt, they're before Joseph. They still don't know it's him. He's ruling over them. Joseph demands that his brothers leave the youngest brother, Benjamin, with Joseph in Egypt while the others go back to Jacob. But Judah says that can't happen because Judah has already pledged his life for the safety of Benjamin to his father. So listen to what Judah says in Genesis 44, 32, he says, For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I don't bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. You hear the difference of Genesis 38, Judah? In Genesis 44, Judah, you have a man who in Genesis 38 is committed to putting himself above others. And then we see that here he is committed to putting himself in the place in harm's way for the sake of others. He is not putting self-interest forward anymore. He's saying, take me, don't take my brother. Can you imagine being Joseph in that moment? And your last memory of Judah was overhearing him say, you know what, let's make a profit after we sell our brother into slavery. Joseph was probably sitting there hearing Judah talk like this and saying, is this the same person? Is this the same Judah? The answer is no, because God has intervened in Judah's life. God's grace has broken through. And that same grace, that same forgiveness is offered to you and I in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's how this passage ends this morning. 
We see God's grace at work in the darkest places to bring about the promised one. In verses 27 through 30, we see Tamar. God answers Tamar's prayers, her desires. She conceives, she bears two sons, Perez and Zerah. Now, if we fast forward to Matthew's gospel, it begins with a genealogy. Matthew 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. As we continue on, we see that line find its culmination in Jesus Christ the Savior. This word Perez, you probably have a footnote in your Bible that says Perez means breach or breakthrough. I love that. In the midst of this sordid story, there are breakthroughs of God's grace. That's how it ends. The kingly line continues. And guess what? The line is just as full of darkness and sin and brokenness as Genesis 38 until it culminates in the birth of the promised one, Christ our Savior. The one who is more righteous than Judah and Tamar than any of us. One who lived a sinless life and died a sacrificial death on the cross, taking our darkness and sin upon himself, rising from the dead, defeating the strongholds of the evil one, and pouring out his grace and declaring us righteous when we believe in him. So as Judah declares Tamar more righteous than him, in the gospel, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus, when we believe, he declares us righteous, vindicated, freed recipients of his grace. Just as there was breakthrough for Tamar, as she was sinned against, and there's breakthrough for Judah who was blinded by his sin, friends, there is breakthrough offered to you and I in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, who's the hero of the story? Might be tempted to say Tamar. Certainly not Judah. No, the hero of this story is Jesus Christ. The one in whom grace breaks through for us. Two things to do with this. I think it's so important. Things that have to happen for us to see the beauty of grace in our own lives against the backdrop of that darkness. First, we have to be honest about our own failures. We have to confront sin in our own hearts. No more blame shifting or, or hiding, but honestly bringing our sin into the light. If your arm is broken and you get a popsicle stick and some tape and try to fix it yourself, you're both crazy and in denial, right? There's only one place you need to go when your arm snaps, the emergency room. You need to be honest about your needs. Same with us. We need to be honest about our failures before a holy God so that he can properly apply the remedy of grace. And that's number two. We're honest about our failures. Second, receive the free grace of Jesus offered to us. See, that first one, being honest about our failures, some of us who are more prone to self-righteousness, we need to hear that one. But there are others of us who have no problem acknowledging our failures. You've heard this and you're like, yep, my life's a mess. I see no brightness, no stars, only sin and struggle, only pain and suffering. You think, man, 
Would God ever welcome someone like me? What does Genesis 38 say? It says, both sinners like Judah and sufferers like Tamar. Sinners like you and sufferers like you are recipients of God's redemption. His grace is sufficient for you and His power is made perfect in your weakness. John Bunyan puts it this way in his book, Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says. Coming sinner, I have a word for you. Be of good comfort. He will not cast you out. Of all, you are blessed of the Lord. The Father has sent His Son to be a sacrifice for you. And Jesus Christ, your Lord, has gone to prepare a place for you. What more shall I say to you? You come to a full Christ. Coming sinner, Jesus to whom you are coming is lowly in heart. He does not despise you. Not your outward wretchedness, nor your inward weakness, nor because you're poor or base or even a fool. He has chosen the foolish, the base, the despised things of this world to confound the wise and mighty. Come to him. Receive his grace. Or as Juliana Johnston puts it in her beautiful hymn, Grace Greater Than Our Sin, Sin and despair, like the sea waves cold, threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Friends, only against the backdrop of great failure can we properly see the reality of greater grace for us in Jesus Christ. Let's cling to that grace this morning. Let's pray.